Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast. And yes, you saw right in the heading or in the post on social media, today's guest is the legend, Ron Perlman. I was hugely excited to get to go and talk to Ron and to not have too much restriction on times. It was great. Um, This came about because I saw, I've chatted to Ron a few times online and I saw that... um, he was in London. He did some posts on Instagram of some bridges. I said, he's in London. So I just sent him a DM and said, if you've got any spare time and fancy a chat, I'd love to have you on the podcast. And I sent that on the Wednesday and he messaged back going, yeah, are you about tomorrow? And I was like, whoa there, Ron. <laughs> I wasn't about tomorrow, but I was like, I'm about on Saturday and I'll come down and have a lovely chat. And that's exactly what we did. And we recorded it outside and it sounded lovely. I think it gives a lovely aesthetic, a bit of noise and and, and and nature there and he was just wonderfully open and honest there's some stories in here about um his sons of anarchy days about uh Guillermo del Toro and about the new Hellboy that I think will fascinate you so before we get into that I should mention we're brought to you as ever by speech development records.com that, that's my record label it's also where you can get distraction pieces podcast merch it'd be really nice if you enjoy these podcasts if you could hop over there and support that'd be wonderful another a way to support as you will have heard if you found the secret podcast i snuck out on uh on friday i snuck a secret podcast out on friday with some free content um extra content um and it's stuff that it's the kind of stuff that you get over at patreon.com slash scroobius pit for just a dollar a month i won't ramble on too much um you know all of that stuff it's there it's available it's an option also aside from all of my own plugs i want to mention um the the conservatory if you listen to my podcast last year with Chili Gonzalez, he's one of my favourite musicians and artists. And we talked a lot about a thing he did a few years ago called The Conservatory, where musicians, like anything from beat makers to, you know, pianists, cellists, guitarists, to singers, to rappers, to spoken word artists, can all apply to go and take part in an all-expenses-paid, basically music scholarship i guess it's it's self-financed by chile and by his people and you get to go um and stay with him in europe and you get to have a, i think it's a week or eight it, it might be eight weeks i can't remember I, I can't remember the exact details but the deadline is is may the first um and yeah if you just look up conservatory g-o-n-z-e-r-v-a-t-o-r-y um conservatory 2019 or chili gonzalez any of that anything you search it's worth looking into if you're a musician of any sort um it's just a hell of an opportunity last year they had kind of master class or the last time they they did it it wasn't last year they had kind of master classes from people like jarvis cocker and um and peaches and like some legendary people so yeah get involved in that i'm gonna get on with the podcast is there anything i need to tell you about I don't know. In in this podcast, um, we talk a little bit about Kurt Sutter. If you're tuning in because you're a fan of Sons, then he's a previous guest. We did a long two-part podcast talking about everything from The Shield to Sons of Anarchy uh, to The Bastard Executioner and everything in between. So that's great. Um, but yeah, we talk. In I mean, I think we touched upon it when I, when I talked to Kurt. We talk here with Ron about how things got tense on set with sons you know and 
I don't know, emotions and relationships and friendships got frayed. And that's always sad to hear. It was weird because I was thinking afterwards. We also talked briefly about the Brost documentary in this episode. And Ron talked about how the, the, the brothers Goss weren't talking for a long time. And Ron was one of the people that, that spoke to, I think it was Matt, and kind of said, look, you should reach out sometime. And that, that struck me when we were... Because it, it, I didn't want to push Ron on anything about the Sons of Anarchy times. But it felt like relationships had got frayed there. And that's sad to me. Because I know Kurt. And I think he's a really good guy. And from meeting Ron, I think he's a great guy. Um, so, yeah. I hope that those guys... if they, I, I don't know what their relationship is now. I'm not giving any, any behind-the-scenes information here. But... I got the feeling, certainly, that relationships are frayed, at least between some of the Suns guys. And, yeah, I did, Charlie's another one who I've I've got on with really well. I did a, my first time on, on, on a film set was with Charlie Hunnam, and it was lovely. He's, he, was, he was a good guy. He felt, yeah, he spoke of, of, of making the right choices and learning and growing up on set. So, yeah. I just hope that if there's any tension between any of those guys, I'd love that. That um, I'd love it if enough time has passed now to be able to reach out and kind of go, look, how's it going, man? Um, so, if any of those guys or anyone associated, I don't know why I'm going all Jerry Springer here. Um, yeah, it'd be lovely it, if if they could reach out, or if anyone wants me to reach out or anything like that. Um, uh, this is really weird intro now, isn't it? I'm getting really a uh, relationship uh, counselor. Let's get on with the podcast. It's a great one. You're going to love it. This is episode 262 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the legend that is Ron Perlman. Greetings, 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 Distraction Pieces listeners. Uh, This is producer Buddy Peace. Just um, quickly checking in to give you a kind of a spoiler warning ahead of the very end of the podcast. Uh, So one of the elements of the podcast that's remained consistent throughout is well a pip's intro greeting which uh, i hope stays the same forever um the other is the theme tune and the other part is the glockenspiel and voice at the end so the voice is um pip's goddaughter lola uh who is uh, the daughter of previous distraction pieces producer warren borg and Amy Borman, who runs the Distraction Pieces social media. That was recorded back in, I want to say, 2014. Um, good little while ago. Uh, I remember it well, though. I was recording some stuff with Warren at the time, because uh, we, we were, and still are, doing um, music under the name Warren Peace. And, yeah, so that day, uh, Amy recorded the Glockenspiel outro, and then Lola, uh, as a, I think a three-year-old back then, and the other day we had a visit from Amy and the crew and decided to give it a little 2019 re-up and a little polish. So, um, yeah, we I know we've all come to adore and love those sweet angelic tones of a three-year-old Lola at the end, but uh, we thought we'd give it a little switch up. So don't be surprised, or do be surprised, but let's embrace, embrace the newness. And, uh, yeah... Uh, hope you enjoy uh just wanted to give you a little shout so it's not too jarring at the end because it's a very familiar outro 
But uh, after, you know, two, over, well over 260 episodes, including bonuses and whatnot, um, why not switch it up, eh? So, yeah, enjoy. Now back to the podcast. get at this hour of the morning but right well we'll take our chances yeah i will see right um i'm joined today by ron perlman how are you sir i'm well i'm well just um full disclosure it's pretty early saturday morning and uh that means that last night was friday night so i'm not responsible for the first 15 minutes of this discussion (laughs) but then again i'm not responsible for the next 15 or the one after that either (laughs) so good luck pip are you enjoying your time in the UK? Very much so. I mean, from the sounds of it, from the Friday uh, night you've had. I'm here doing what I love, which is watching other people work, <laughs> which is largely what actors do. Yeah. But um, I'm one that's always railing about how all of the fucking roles are going to the Brits these days in, in, in my beloved <laughs> Hollywood. And I say beloved Hollywood <laughs> with a sly smirk. Yeah. Me being a good Bronx boy. But anyway, uh, we've turned the tables on them. Yeah. We've brought an American over here to act in the BBC. I love it. And I, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying every second of it. I, I moved from music into acting about five years ago, and it felt like the perfect time because it felt everything in America was trying to make... Because of Game of Thrones, it was a lot of, there was a lot of medieval stuff being made and stuff like that. I was like, I've got a big beard, a British accent... Easy, right? I can I can stroll into it. So were you right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean, I mean, the first role I got. It's weird because they it all links. The first role I got was in the King Arthur Guy Ritchie film alongside Charlie Hunnam, who you've obviously worked with a lot. And Mm -hmm. I hit it off with Charlie, and he recommended me to Kurt Sutter, who you've obviously worked with a lot, and he put me in the Bastard Execution. And so it has kind of been that kind of chain of. All oh, right. Let's see how, how it goes. wonderful. Again, I'm now ready. I've now had that first experience of a year of getting no roles and stuff like that because that's how the industry is, right? But, but you're someone who's just always working. Like I was kind of on these. I often go through a lot of, of people's career, but you've just done so much that we're going to have to really cherry pick bits here and there. So how it's is that? As, fine with me. As getting into, if you can find my cherry at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, before we get into that, what was your route into acting? Because you said, you know, a Bronx boy, it's kind of, it's not always the areas where um, acting is put on the table as a as a viable option or as a, a career path. Well, I came from a family where everybody did something, you know, mostly played instruments, musical instruments, some of them professionally. My dad was a professional drummer. Oh, wow. My brother ended up being a professional drummer. And so it was almost like de rigueur to have some sort of a a musical outlet. What I discovered at a rather young age is that I had no other discipline nor the skill (laughs) to uh, master an instrument. But I knew I had to express myself creatively just in order to, you know, survive and my family stay alive and, you know, garner the attention that I craved. Yeah. So um, I... uh, just began desperately looking for an art form that required no skill and no discipline. (laughs) 
and uh, dr- driven lo- by competition there lo- so it's fits and driven right? by and lo and behold um i got cast in a high school play oh wow and the reason why i got cast is because <clears throat> i was the only boy that showed up in this audition for a play that had you know 15 male roles and three women roles and 40 girls showed up and me. So my odds were really good at getting, <laughs> yeah. getting a fat, juicy part in this play. Yeah. Or a number of them, in fact. But anyway, I did the play and I said, okay, this is it. I'm, you know, we got to opening night. The audience seemed engaged and even entertained and were laughing in parts. And I said, I'm holding a thousand people in the palm of my hand. I found my art form and I'm, I've managed to do it with smoke and mirrors, yeah. you know, and so um, I became um, completely um, intoxicated by uh, the sensation of it all and then just went from play to play in high school, two years of that, four more years in undergrad school um, in New York City, and then two more years in grad school. And so by the time I got out of uh, my schooling, I had really eight years of stage yeah. training. And without ever really studying acting, just getting on the boards and solving the problems of playing yeah. a role. And that was my background. And by the time I got out of school, I realized, okay, well, I just am going to have to give this a try. And the reason why you see me working so much now is because from age 23, which is when I got done with my schooling, to around age 50, I would get great jobs yeah. once every two years. Yeah. And then the, the the other 18 months were terrifying. Yeah, yeah. In terms of, you know, just survival. And so when I hit a stride where things were starting to get easier in terms of, you know, winning roles, I just never said no. I, yeah. still, I still don't. Yeah. I, w- I, I became friends on a job, again, with a, an actor called Stephen Graham. I've always been a big fan of. And the way he put it was... If he'd gone into painting and decorating, for example, he wouldn't get to a house and go, no, I don't fancy that one. You get booked to do the job and then you go and do it to the, 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 the peak of your abilities. And that's, that's how he's kind of garnered his career and going, right. Obviously, there's a level of discretion and, and, and picking the right roles. But still, if you get booked, you go and do the job as, as an actor, right? So it's great to be in demand and get those opportunities. I mean, I have marginal criteria. Mm-hmm. And when I say marginal, I'm, I'm always hoping that when I open a script and start reading that I'm going to love it. Yeah. It doesn't always happen. But um, my, my criteria are if I'm drawn into a world that I've never been in before and I'm forced to just keep turning the pages in order to find out where this, this unique imagination is taking me. And then if the role is something that I feel like I can understand and and give a, a credible performance in, I'll say yes. And um, since I love indie films so much, the, that, that's where the best writing presides. You know, yeah. the, the studios are doing all this shit. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the, the art form is being preserved by people who are living on the fringes. I think maybe always were, except there was a time when storytelling was um, was the whole ball of wax, you know. But that's long gone. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you find that um, learning on the on the job as such by treading the boards in in in, in education? Do you feel that really prepared you well for for TV and for film? Because all of a sudden, you get to have another go. You, 
you, you get to have another take. You get to try it a different way. And when you're on stage, it's it's so unforgiving. It's there and then. You have to get it right, you know, at least to an extent in that moment. So did you feel that prepared you well for, for acting on film then, I guess? Well, acting on film was... I'm not, I'm not sure about all people who get all of their um, knowledge from from acting on the stage. But for me, it was an adjustment, learning how to dial back the the, um, the discipline to, you know, where it's very behavioral and very uh, quiet and specific and real, which is what's required when the camera is watching yeah. you, whereas there's other things you can get away with on the stage. Um, it should always be those things, by the way, but... The, the, you know, in the theater, you have to reach the third balcony. Yeah. And so it's by definition going to be a bit more theatrical. But so, I, you know, I, I, I am to this day trying to train myself how to be a good camera actor. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm always tweaking. I'm always finding ways to go deeper um, and be more real and be more twisted and behavioral um, than I would if I'd probably stayed on the stage. But what's happened to me is, is that there's been this horrific reversal, whereas at one point you could have put me naked on a stage, you know, masturbating, and I would have been completely unselfconscious. And now um, I can't get on a stage because right. film and TV has ruined me yeah, and made me uh, terrified of the fuck-up that can happen, yeah. Yeah. you know, in, in a live performance. And so I haven't been able to do a play since the 90s. Oh, wow. And um, I'm kind of half looking for one right now. Not so much because I want to do a play, but because I have to break this spell yeah. of stage fright that, that kind of befell me. And, and I know it's befallen way greater people than me. I know Lawrence Olivier had this horrific period where he was terrified to get on the stage. I think what happens is when you get on a set, a movie set, and you become inured to the fact that if I don't get this right, I have, you know, as many chances at it as I need. And um, there's really nobody watching you um, yeah. except the director. Everybody else is doing a job. So it's a very kind of a private, um, controlled environment to do very good, intimate work. You don't have any of that on stage. Um, you are exposed and yeah. you have to get it right from from your first entrance to your final bow, you know, and um, every night and you have to make it look like it's happening for the first time. It's an art form in and of itself and uh, I'm terrified of it. And so I'm, I want to die, not this week, but I want to die having broken the spell and getting back on the stage and proving to myself that I, you know, I, I conquered that. And it, it's not a complaint because... It wouldn't have happened if I, if the good Lord hadn't given me all these opportunities to do TV and stage yeah. and TV and film. And I really, really love being a TV and film actor. Um, so there's a trade-off. But um, you try to um, deal with uh, the obstacles as they come and, and be mad enough to face them. Yeah, I mean, it really is a trade-off, right? Because the, the, what you will have lost, the confidence, I guess, that you will have lost from doing... TV and film on camera acting, you will have also learned a lot in those situations because of the intimacy, because of the, the, the ability to focus on things other than I need to nail this first time and that's all that, 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 that matters. So I'm sure when that opportunity goes back on stage comes and you get past that kind of stage fright, 
it'll be a far better experience for you even because you'll have a greater understanding of the of the minutiae of 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 the characters and things things like that, that maybe you had in the 90s when you were last on stage as so, yes yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting one but um do you have a preference at the moment over uh, between tv and film because tv has changed i mean throughout your career t- 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 tv has now changed hugely where tv at one point would look like film is the ultimate goal and TV is 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 an, an another thing. Whereas now so much has gone into TV and so many stories, things like Sons of Anarchy, which I'm sure we'll talk about, have been allowed to grow characters slowly over so long and tell stories over such an extended amount of time. It must be hard at points to then go, all right, now this new character or story we've got to tell, we've got 90 minutes to do it in or, t- or two hours to do it in rather than... 30 hours 40 hours so is is, is there a, a difference appeal there you know i don't there's no difference in the sensation of tv acting versus film acting it's the exact same approach it's the exact same you know you're acting for a camera yeah or two um depending on the size of the budget i guess and, <laughs> uh the efficacy of uh, the approach um but um it's the same you know as, as opposed to theater which we discussed but there's no difference to it what has changed in the course of my lifetime, and I've gotten to see this, and I wrote a, I wrote a, a, a memoir a couple of years ago called Easy Street, and I kind of chronicled what I was going up against as, as compared to what my kids were getting out of art school or having to um, battle in order to you know, carve a path for themselves as artists. And the market forces are the whole deal. Yeah. The market forces tell... The whole story. And and by that I mean, and it's going to sound trite and like I've boiled it down to some excuse, but no, I mean, in, in the 60s and 70s when, you know, there were 10 movies by five studios coming yeah. out every week by people like Friedkin and, and Coppola and Scorsese and, yeah. and, and uh, um, I mean, you know, I'm drawing a blank, but, you know, you, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah, completely. And these were all stories about very ambiguous moralities yeah. and behaviors and real brand new almost philosophical way of delving into the human condition but yeah. the human condition was the fucking thing that was, was was driving the bus yeah completely so of course the elites of anybody who wanted to who was who was a writer of dramatic literature yeah the the place to be was in cinema and it was vibrant. And if you had any kind of talent coming out of Yale or Harvard or yeah. any, any school that had a decent writing program, you were going to start writing screenplays and trying to get them to, to Friedkin. Yeah. And um, uh, that was it. That was the fucking Mount Olympus of, of, of our art form. Yeah. And, you know, if you were lucky enough to get your thing made, you got a paycheck at the yeah. end of it. All that is gone in movies. Yeah. Completely and utterly gone. If you want to do what I just described, you'll have all of that except a paycheck. Yeah. So people are just no longer banging their heads against the wall to try to to turn to, to have this thing that we once lovingly referred to as cinema be preserved. I'm finding that because I started my own movie company five years ago, and nobody gives a fuck. Yeah. There's no market for it. It's 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 so. It's all turned into some people just staying at home and watching 
the movie they ordered on Netflix. Yeah, that's, Imme- that's immediate kind of like you know, I touch my dick, I come, boom. Yeah. You know, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. no foreplay. Yeah, there's no you know, there's no curiosity about this this and and so. I, as somebody who has straddled the fence and ge- generationally and know what it used to be like, I'm sitting here railing against what we've lost, but my kids don't have any fucking idea what we've lost because they never had it to begin with. Yeah, this is just They just know been. what they have. So I'm one of these guys who's just, you know, going to be shaking my fist in the air for the rest of his life, you know. But in the meantime, I still have this uh, am- amazing appetite for what I described edgy, ambiguous, almost amoral explorations into the human condition. Yeah. Great, really original, really daring, really, really sick, twisted writing that is smart and sound and delivers huge punches to make you, you know, fall on your ass when you're watching it. And unfortunately, or fortunately, as the case may be, it's all happening in television. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. If you want to have that, what I just described, mm-hmm. and a paycheck, you have to go to TV. And, uh, and, that's, and, that's and the good news is, is the good news, the, the, other, the last part of it, and then I'll shut up. No, no, go ahead. But the good news is, is that, like, Sons of Anarchy only happened because of cable. Yeah. Um, streaming only happened because of cable. Yeah. And now you have um, everybody all the way down to YouTube and Google making original content. Yeah. And they have huge troughs of cash that they can really spend on making epic content. It's like HBO, you know, made Game of Thrones. It yeah. was just, it was like, you know, Peter Jackson on steroids. Yeah. And so it's not bullshit. It's, it's like fucking, there's all these new delivery systems that are vying for attention. And in order to get the attention, they have to be even more original than the last guy. They have to be even more daring than the last guy. So television is an incredibly thriving, just creatively speaking, yeah. sort of you know, field to, yeah. play, to play in for an artist. And you also get a paycheck. Yeah, I mean, And if you have any respect bonus. for raising a family and, 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 and doing the craft and, and, and being able to pay your rent and not having to drive a fucking Uber at night in order to make ends meet, you got to do that. Yeah. I think the thing that kind of saddens and then angers me a little is that there should be a place for all of these things. Like, I understand that a big screen adds a lot to a superhero film or or any of these other things. So, So I understand that. But also, there should be a place for the kind of films that you were talking about that are going into the minutiae and, and finding the kind of... the the art and beauty and darkness and and depravity in it all, and it's a shame that that seems to only have its place in TV now, or 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 even I mean a push on streaming services in films, but still there will always be that push towards because the industry has become so financially dr- dr- driven rather than purely artistic driven. I can understand that a Netflix would rather have a twelve part series than a ninety minute film because it's bingeable, it's more sellable and all that kind of thing. So it's, yeah, all of it has its place, but I wish there was a a finer b- balance of it all, I guess. I wish we could have more of those films that, that, that aren't necessarily your big blockbuster, but they're so important and have such a place. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I just, uh, 
I love cinema. You know, I learned everything I needed to know about. I got a, a master's of fine arts degree. I went to school for longer than your average bear, you know. Yeah. And I learned nothing by all those classes I attended. I yeah. mean, I got turned on to some great writers and turned on to some great sure. artists and turned on to some great people. But every single thing I learned about the man I want to be and about the life I want to live and about the imagination that I want to spark, I learned from movies. Yeah. You know, I learned how to walk watching John Wayne. Yeah. I learned how to be tough watching Cagney and Eddie G and Humphrey Bogart. You know, I learned how to love watching Gary Cooper and, you know, and I learned the proper way to go about those things because these guys, the writers who were writing those things understood codes, right? codes of human behavior. Yeah. And it's, that's been true of all of our dramatic literature, all the way from Aristophanes, mm-hmm. you know, all the way through Truffaut and everybody else. I mean, yeah. basically those are the guys who figure out like you, you make a movie because you have something you have to, expose about human behavior that is cathartic basically that's it yeah i just in a a nutshell gave you all of aristotle yeah (laughs) um and you know give me a call if you if you want plato or virgil or any of those because i'll I'll, I'll boil that down to half a sentence as well perfect (laughs) uh give me a call seriously my number is 781-962-593 Forty-seven, eleven, a hundred and nine. <laughs> That's perfect. So, I mean, you touched upon the the freedom of TV there, and and Sons of Anarchy is really one that seemed to push the boundaries, and it was great. It felt like it had a freer reign given to it off the back of the shield, which is another series I absolutely adored, and I thought it really it blurred those lines of good and evil, right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable. And Sons of Anarchy just seemed to, to run with, with, with the, the ball there and make it a completely new game. So how was that to be part of at the start? And how was it to see... Because it was a slow burner as well. It wasn't like this instant... It's now, it's now remembered as this huge show. It wasn't an instant huge show, right? It was a gradual build and build. And then it felt like it was part of, of, of American culture. It was pretty, it was pretty sudden. Yeah. I mean, by the end of season one, we felt anointed. Yeah. All of us who are, I mean, you know, John Landgraf, who runs FX brilliantly, the greatest executive I've yeah. ever worked for in my entire life. And John, I hope you're listening because I really need a job after this BBC <laughs> thing is over with. And I'm not kissing your ass, but I am. But anyway, um, he renewed Sons of Anarchy for a second season when the fourth episode had already aired. Wow. That's how confident he was in the fact that he had touched upon a nerve, a very, you know, like a nerve that was going to resonate and that there was going to be a lot of stories that the public was going to want to see from this very fertile world that uh, Sutter had stumbled upon. And by doing that, by by handing us this vote of confidence of saying, you're going to be with us for a while here, at least two seasons, everybody felt like, the muscles flex like yeah. we 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 were given permission to like go further and explore deeper and really really show people a kind of a an, a, an ecosystem in yeah. this club world yeah this this forbidden world which was living completely anarchistically off the grid and um i think kurt took that ball and ran with it and and like 
I've told this story before, but it's so delicious, it bears repeating. But I think it was like we were going along, and we were, you know, holding our own with ratings. You know, it was it was good, but it wasn't off the off the chart. And then they did an episode about when this carnival comes to our little town of Charming, right? And one of uh, the captains of industry's daughter ends up getting raped, thirteen-year-old kid, and he comes to the sons for justice. Mm-hmm. And we find the the guy who did it, and you know the last act is we I cut his balls off and and have him bleed out. Yeah. And the f- <laughs> and <laughs> we went from you know being in like twenty fifth place to being in first place. Wow. I mean, we found our wheelhouse. Yeah. And we found that what audiences was was craving was extreme justice. Yeah. Like yeah. people taking matters into their own hands, vigilantism. You know, well, that's you, it. I mean, it, I, I think the key though is having someone who can take that into their hands for you on your behalf. Do you right. know what I mean? It's that extreme justice that you'd love to take but couldn't. Right. That you can give to the sons, right. and they can go and take that extreme justice for you. So it's even it's taken out of your own responsibility, but going, yes, that's what I wanted to do, but, but now I don't have to have to feel guilty because it wasn't me cutting off those balls but here we were you know kind of like skirting around trying to define ourselves as a a subculture in these first three or four episodes and we were doing a pretty good job of it but it was pretty pedantic and pretty what's the word i'm looking for uh when you're giving all the information you know somebody who gives a speech yeah it's kind of over explaining it and 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 kind of trying to and and then we and, and, and then we put this thing out in the zeitgeist about exactly how ruthless we were and you know, performing an act like this was just something we did in the course yeah. of a day. And we found our, our, our niche, we found our audience, we found our stride, and we never looked back after that. Yeah. We, we, you know, for seven seasons, this thing became a juggernaut, unlike anything I've ever experienced. And to this day, um, you know, everywhere I go, what is in doubt upon me by people who see me on the street and who watch Sons of Anarchy is mind-blowing. I mean, yeah. it's mind-blowing. Yeah. I, I've done a lot of work, but nothing that's ever... You can see the look in people's eyes when they tell you about how they just finished watching for the third time all seven seasons. And so, um, yeah, it was a game changer. And it was an example of how you could explore a world in cable in in a very specific way with the violence, with the sex, with the drugs, with the rock and roll that you couldn't do on network television. Yeah. Like 10 years earlier. Yeah, you just yeah, couldn't yeah. do it. And The Shield was, the, was, was one of the game changers that gave notice to the world that television is, is, is about to expand in ways that only movies could, Yeah, you know, in years prior. Yeah. And so that's the bar that got set, and we were part of it. And, uh, and now I am benefiting as an artist by the fact that uh, I've just done a show for Amazon for two years, which really, really, like... Um, Push the envelope, and then I did another show for Sony Crackle, which pushed the envelope even further. And you know, and I'm developing three or four other things I'm trying to get done. But you know, there's this voracious appetite to have the envelope pushed in yeah. television, and that's where you want to be as a storyteller. Completely. Um, oh, you touched upon earlier about how much you learn from watching people on the screen. You learned to walk from John Wayne and you learned, you know, all these other things. How much did you learn from 
playing clay for so long? Because it's it's got to be you guys as actors. I mean, it's wonderful on set when you become kind of a gang or or you find your friends and it all comes together. But that's got to be turned up a notch when you're all playing a gang and you're you're riding around on on bikes and you're being yeah this intimidating scary group did that teach you anything did that have to be reined in at all as you're all like well remember we're playing playing roles here how was that as a as an experience well i'm not going to comment <laughs> but um let's just put it this way a lot of people who were just fucking actors yeah had their lines blurred yeah in terms of like you know thinking that they were tougher than they actually yeah, were yeah and i got to see it in action because when you're doing a tv series you're kind of in a war anyway yeah you, you know you're in a you, you know, i'm you know it's, I, I would never compare myself to the people who actually go to war but it is a, it is a war it's political it's it's emotional it's spiritual your career is involved your ego is involved um everybody's looking to be the star yeah Somebody said in, in a thing I watched yesterday, everybody is engineering the way f- to make the story about them. Sure. And there was never a group of guys that I've ever worked with <laughs> to which that phrase was truer. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's this famous story about how they shot the first take of Magnificent Seven. And right. It's, it's, it's seven guys, you know, on horseback riding across a stream and, you know... Um, Yul Brenner goes first, and then Steve McQueen goes after him, takes his hat off, <laughs> leans down, fills his hat with water, pours it on his head, and then puts his hat back on. Then James Coburn does something more theatrical, and, and Yul Brenner, who was producing the film, says, cut, cut, cut. Jesus Christ. <laughs> is that what this is going to fucking be? Yeah. All you guys just fucking parading around trying to fucking get screen time? Constant one-upsmanship. Yeah. And <laughs> that's kind of what the Sons of Anarchy set was like. Yeah. Was, um, you know, th- there was nothing but type A personalities. Yeah. It, there were nothing but alpha dogs. Yeah. Every single guy at that table was a fucking alpha dog. You'd find somebody who was kind of like happy to, to follow rather than lead. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God yeah. we, have, we have one follower here. Yeah. In a world of leaders. So uh, it made for a rather interesting environment. And, 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 and those environments can, not always will, but can make that amazing atmosphere on screen, can make that bleed out the screen because there is that, 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 that hustle by everyone to raise the, their game because of that fear of someone else raising their game. And that can, be, that can end up having a, a positive result, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, what I'm describing is a highly charged energy field yeah and part of it was uh inspired by the material by how you know innately violent we were innately explosive we all were as people living in a world and then the rest of it was all those other things that i said you know like like uh oh I'm, i'm i'm on the number one fucking hit show on television and i want everybody to think it's about me yeah and so, yeah, that makes for a rather, you know, like, you know, you, you just, you're constantly waiting for something awful to happen, yeah. like yeah. a bad car accident, yeah. because the, 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 the room is filled with that 
charged kind of energy. And, um, yeah, it is, it's, it's, it was probably part of the zeitgeist of what made sons as, uh, and we kept rediscovering ourselves through that energy. So we kept doubling down on what it was that made sons as, <laughs> yeah. as dangerous and explosive yeah. as it was. It's, it's, it's such a weird one. Cause, um, I did a, a, a BBC TV show called taboo and my belief going into that. And I kind of decided this kind of early on was the exact opposite of that of, 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 of I don't believe in the idea of stealing a scene. You should all be contributing and adding to it. But if you're stealing it, then as I said, you're doing something wrong there. You're, you're, you're making it about you rather than about the, the project. And, and the example I get, I, I've given before is, was I, I was obsessed with finding ways to steal my, my own scene in my head without negatively impacting anything else. And there was a scene where Tom Hardy and Stephen Graham are meeting for the first time and I'm in the background and we're just meant to be hanging in the background. And I, but I knew that the, the next time I'm on camera, I'm slitting someone's throat. So I decided in the background, I'll be sh- sharpening my knife. And that's, make, that, that's allowing me to put everything into my character and be focused there, but not interrupting anything. And if anyone w- wants to focus, then they'll know I've put these things along to tell this story. So having that belief, and it, it seemed to go down well on set and it's, it's why my character grew and I've, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to get to be in the second series yet despite having that, that belief I posted a little clip from Taboo because someone else had posted it recently on my social media literally yesterday and got really annoyed when someone said oh I enjoyed your cameo so, so despite that belief of not wanting to, to steal any shows there's always going to be that thing of no it's not a cameo. I'm, I'm, I'm proper. I'm, I'm, I'm a character. I'm, I'm really part of this and all this. So that weird ego part is always g- going to come in. And no matter how r- rational you can argue it in your head, there's still going to be that natural physical, emotional reaction to, to feeling like you're part of the furniture, right? It's a tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's, 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 um, and then there's like, as you're describing that thing, I couldn't help, but cause I, I do the same thing that you're just describing with yeah. regard to sharpening the knife. Yeah, yeah. And it's you're walking that fine line of going, this character is, of course, sharpening the knife because that's what this character is getting ready to go do. Yeah. Or this character is sharpening the knife because that activity will set me apart from the rest right. of the cast. Right, yeah, yeah, And yeah, so yeah. one is slightly corrupt and the other one is slightly, yeah. is slightly indigenous to what you've been hired to do. It's finding and, the balance, and I it's, guess. And it's, and it's walking that tightrope. Yeah. Of, like, you know, but there's certain lines that I've heard actors say that stay with me for the rest of my life, you know. James Cagney's line was, never get caught acting. Yep. So that's yeah. ap- apropos to what you were yeah, describing. Yeah, yeah, completely. You can, you can sharpen that fucking knife, but you better not get caught. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get you completely. I love that. Um, well, so, so how was it to, to break away from Sons, to, to, to have a project that you said yourself was the biggest impact you'd had in, or, 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 or in your career, the biggest thing you'd had recognition for and that reaction in the streets and also building that family of working with Katie throughout, who was also in the bus executioner. So I got to enjoy some, 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 some time on set with her, but working with Katie and Charlie and all these other people, how was it to see that, that come to an end and go, right, here's, is was it a relief to get to move on or was it a kind of uh, a reticence to let it go? 
It was a lot of things, yeah. some of which I'm rather uncomfortable talking about. But um, there was a part of me, because I'd never played a character for one character for six years. And clearly, um, in terms of just the creative challenge of discovering everything I needed to discover mm-hmm. and perform every facet of, a, of one single human, I was, I was done. I yeah. mean, I, was, I would have been good if you'd, if you'd stopped it after season two or three. I mean, yeah. you know, the exploration was deeper than I'd ever gone with a character before because of the exercise of perpetuating the length of a TV season yeah. or a TV series, you know. You want to go as long as you can, but sometimes you're just going and, you know, walking in place in order to perpetuate the, 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 the lifespan. So I was creatively okay with, um, with saying goodbye to Clay, but then there was the family aspect of it. You know, in, if you're involved in a show for six years, mm-hmm. it's not just a show anymore. It's like, uh, yeah. it's a family, and it's a part of your identity. And so that part of it made it very tough and yeah. very sad to finally say goodbye, particularly in light of the fact that they were going to do another season without me. Yeah. And that hurt. Yeah. Um, because it was, that ran counter to what I was promised for the whole right. length of the thing. Kurt made a decision um, right as we were going into the sixth season, brought me in and, 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 and gave me the news. And uh, that sixth season was really tough between him and me, really right. tough, um, because I'd been lied to and, and uh, manipulated, and um, it kind of fucked it all up. Yeah. So uh, I was, by the time I left the show, I, I was just eager to find myself another field in which to play. And um, before Clay actually fell, mm-hmm. we had signed all of the papers for the Hand of God for Amazon. Oh, right. Wow. And I produced that show. So I was involved in everything from the ground up, which was one of the things that um, I was inspired to do by working under Kurt was yeah. that like... Um, I want to create an environment. Well, I won't. I won't go into any more detail on that. But I, I was determined to to create an environment that was humane and yeah. uh, respectful of the collaborative process. And Hand of God came along, and it was just one of the most exciting worlds I had ever read. And uh, unfortunately, we only got two seasons of that thing. Um, but you know, a lot of that was was inspired by um wanting to counteract yeah what i had just been through yeah and uh in no way shape or form is this a complaint because sons of anarchy was there'll never be a, a greater blessing in terms of the impact it had on my personal life my finances my career etc but um you know yeah it wasn't perfect so so how was it to jump in into hand of god because that, that it felt like it was one of the first times amazon were really making a play uh, a, a big series that had a few but that had a lot that they'd bought in from other networks and things like that and hand of god it, it felt like one then when they were going right let's let's start pushing this out there how, how was that to be kind of thrown into and be trusted with in a way and be part of it was exciting i mean the fact that um we took hand of god to every network cable station streaming service that was out there 
And the fact that Amazon was willing to embrace a show that had what we found out was as we were trying to sell this thing, everybody loved it, but nobody wanted to touch a show that had the word God in the title. Right. And the fact that Amazon did, yeah, they were willing to embrace it, proved to me that number one, they had balls. Number two, they understood that they needed to do something bold and original in order to brand themselves as a studio that embraced bold and original. Yeah. And that we were going to be, you know, um, nurtured and embraced because we, we we had the ability to maybe be that show. Yeah. So it was an incredibly... They were setting an example with you guys to show yeah, what that, they, they know, plan like, to like, do going like, forward. Like I believe that the Shield branded yeah. FX. Yeah, completely. And once, once they stumbled onto this thing, after, you know, like, you know, experimenting hither and thither, they come up on the shield and they go, okay, now we know who we are. Here's what we do. Yeah. This is what we do. And then, she, and then that gave way to one of the greatest series of programming mm-hmm. decades, you know, we've ever seen. This is why John Landgraf is a genius is because he, he picks phenomenally well-told worlds yeah. and gives them a platform. And that's how I regarded Amazon embracing hand of God. Yeah. And initially, um, things happen over the course of a couple of years and things ensue. But uh, initially, that's what I thought. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, speaking of, 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 of well-told uh, uh, worlds, the first time I became really aware, I'd, 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 I was aware of your work, but it was Hellboy that kind of really put you on my radar and on my DVD shelf. How was that to be part of, to get that role and then to be working with del toro obviously and yeah how was hellboy as a as a project hellboy was um a dream yeah and 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 i've done two hellboys and it's so far in the past it's crazy (laughs) but it's still a dream yeah it's still i have trouble answering the question because there was so much so many um facets of that becoming a reality and then becoming a reality with me yeah in the lead that it's almost i've never had a frame of reference that compares to what del toro went through to win me that role and and literally it took him 7 years of wow. of 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 having complete like shades come down yeah whenever he mentioned my name with regard to that role 5 years it was at one studio and eventually at the end of 5 years the studio said here you can take your 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 little hellboy idea and and go elsewhere we we obviously we're we're never gonna see eye to eye on this yeah but he stood and fought for one actor who was not a particularly big name movie star um with a following with uh some sort of guaranteed value internationally you know all of the things that one needs as collateral when one green lights a huge movie franchise and he just doggedly said i'd rather not make the movie at all than, wow. to, than to make it the yeah. way you want me to make it. And I've ne- I'd never seen that before. I don't think I've ever seen it since. And I may never see it again, which is why it's such a, a singular, almost indescribable experience about when you ask me what it was like. Yeah. yeah, it was like that. It was like, holy shit. Even I was betting against him. Yeah, yeah. Even I was telling Del Toro, man, I see what you're trying to do here. And I'm very moved by it, and I'm 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 very 
it, I'll be eternally grateful as you might might be in my bro, my hermano. But go make your movie, man. You're not going to get it made <laughs> yeah. if you keep saying my name. Yeah. You're just not going to do it. Go make your movie. I'll show up on opening day. I'll you know I'll, I'll ride a white charger, you know, and carry the flag and yeah. get as many people as I can to come see it. But you know this is folly. Yeah. And Del Toro would always say, "Yes, you are right, my friend. Yes, I will do it with the rock." You know, and uh, he was he was bullshitting me. He yeah. never intended to do it with anybody but me. Yeah, and he got it done. And the way he got it done was like also kind of Hollywood fairy tale kind of shit. You know, um, but he got it done. Yeah. How much did it mean then that that one was embraced and it and it was a hit and a, a, a rare thing, particularly with comic book properties rare thing that the fans loved it and adored it how much more did that mean than 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 other roles i guess because you know how much he'd gone through to put you in there because i guess the pressure's really on if he's gone through that fight to put you in there even to the extent where you're saying just leave it man it's not gonna work then when it gets greenlit the pressure's fucking on right because everyone's been saying no 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 and you you're now going right let's let's prove them wrong i mean initially the sphincter Titans. Yeah, yeah, I the can pressure. Imagine. You're you're right. The pressure is on, <laughs> but really, what happened was this vote of confidence that you get when your best friend in the world, and yeah. and, and and aside from that, you, one of your favorite filmmakers, whether he's yeah. your friend or not, is that certain that you're the guy? Yeah. Then you go from okay, holy shit! If I fuck this up, everybody dies. You know, yeah, yeah. To um. I owe him, I just owe him all of that confidence he has yeah. in me by, by, by being Hellboy, yeah. by like showing the world why he was right. Yeah. And, and it turned, at that moment, when that, when that reality hit me, it just turned into this huge labor of love. I felt like I don't have to worry whether I'm good or not. I just have to be Hellboy. Yeah. And, um, and that all came from this cosmic amazing kind of like vote of confidence yeah. that del toro showed in me and uh we ended up having just an amazing time making making the guy it was just day after day of discovery and 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 joie de vivre and laughter and and wonder and you know he would say try it this way and then i would one up it and then he would go oh yeah that was great now do that. Said, it just became this collaboration egoless collaboration where and this is hearkening back to what i was trying to inelegantly explain about the the sons of anarchy thing when you are collaborating without ego yeah it's a beautiful thing yeah you know when 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 you when you say to the director who has spent the last eight, eight years making this movie in his head hey how about if i read the line this way yeah and he, you know, there's two types of response to that. It's like, yeah. go fuck yourself. <laughs> You're going to do it my way because I, eight years I put into the, yeah. or holy shit, I never imagined that. Let's try it. Yeah. That's egoless collaboration. Completely. And when everybody is firing on all cylinders on a movie set, it's a really, really beautiful thing because at the end of the day, I have no control over whether movie is going to be a success or a failure what it's going to do at the box office yeah. whether people are going to like me or not like me whether this thing is going to come and go without mm-hmm. without you know 
making a sound. Yeah. The only thing I have control over is what happens while we're making it. Yeah. And once I made that discovery that this is, I'm just doing this for me and, and, and the people I love who are surround me and who help me in this endeavor and who support me in this endeavor, everything got good. Yeah. You know, I don't give a shit what a movie does. Yeah. Or who sees it. Yeah. I really don't. And if it's, if, 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 if it succeeds like, if, and you and I are like bouncing back and forth about the success of things. Yeah. The dealing with like what happens. Yeah, no, fuck that. Yeah. That's none of my concern. The success is when you and Guillermo sit down and watch it and you're happy with it, right? The success is After like going, that, going home whatever. at night in the car yeah. when you still have fucking glue, you know, and <laughs> yeah. you, know you can't blow your nose because yeah. it's filled with prosthetics and going, that was a great day. Yeah. We just had a fucking great day and we just, we just made a deliciously cool little scene yeah. of Hellboy in action. Yeah. And that's my little secret. I, I, I could tell that to a gazillion people. It won't mean anything to them. Yeah. Like, a, what, like it does to me. Or I could go home at the end of the day and go, Jesus Christ, I wish I had another shot at that. I don't think I got my best. Yeah. And deal with that. But it's very, very, very personal. And it has absolutely zilch to do with the outside world. Yeah. Even though it's, a, it's an art form that needs the approval of the outside world yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. And so you have to embrace the fact that, you know. But my, my assumption is if I do my job properly and I pick the right projects, eventually I'm going to find something that resonates yeah. like he Sons of Anarchy, like Hellboy, you know. Um, and I'm, 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 I keep t getting up to the plate and taking big, big swings at the fence. And... Uh, I'm confident that there'll be a, a, another one or two of those before it's all over with. I love it. And if there's not, I'm still having a, a, a fucking awesome time, Pip. I mean, that's the key part, right? The fact that you were saying the success is when you're driving home or going back to your hotel or wherever and going, wow, that's been... It's amazing I'm getting to, to, uh, to do this. That's got to be the key because you're the one that has to be doing this day in, day out, every day. So if, if the every day is absolute hell and then at the end they say, it's been a success... You're still living that hell every day. The key has to be the every day rather than, the, as you said, the box office, the this and that. The key has to be l looking after that every day so you know that you're going home to your family, to your hotel, to, to whatever else, and knowing that you're feeling alive and feeling that you're, you're, you're creating something that you're proud of and, and it's positive to be involved in, right? Yeah, and everything else is a distraction. Yeah. One has to worry about one's career. One has to worry about one's finances. Say, it can be a hell of a distraction. One has to worry about one's finances, especially if you're trying to raise kids and yeah. you know give them a you know a decent life. Um, but if those are the things that are wagging the dog, yeah, then you're in trouble. Yeah, or at least you lose my respect. Yeah, my respect is about like what we're here doing on this set on this day. How much? respect we're showing for the material for each other yeah. for the collaborative process and letting it rip man just fucking letting it rip Love and it. nothing else matters yeah and i'm i can say that because i'm lucky enough to like have made a few bucks in this business and <laughs> yeah. so i don't i'm not a guy who's having to worry about you know paying next month's rent at least this week yeah although i'm 
very cognizant of the fact that in six months that could, that could change. That could yeah. all change. Could change for any of us. So it sounds like, oh yeah, that's easy for Ron fucking Perlman to say, you know. Yeah. He's the star of the BBC. <laughs> exactly. I, I love what you said there about collaborations with respect in them. Um, I had Jimmy Iovine on the podcast, and he said the key to his success in life has been cast in his life correctly because if you're around people that you respect artistically then criticism doesn't hurt people can throw up an idea and say how about i try it this way if you've got that respect for that person as artist then you're going to go yeah let's try it that way if you've cast your life with people that you kind of feel you're above or you're having minions around you or whatever then their criticism is going to be like as you said i've worked eight years on this who the fuck are you to say that so it feels like that was the perfect example of that on a set because if ever cast cast your life correctly applies anywhere it's on a film set so that feels like the perfect relationship there where you've got that respect for one another to try and then again i'm sure if you try it that way he can turn around and go no that didn't really work and you can both respect that and go yeah yeah you're right. And, and, you did and, it right. And when it doesn't work, you can say, you know, you're right. I, I could feel the minute I tried it, yeah, it wasn't yeah, going to work. But thanks for letting me try it. Yeah, completely. And, you know, 70% of the time, you're going to try something that you know may not work. Yeah. But it does. And everybody goes, okay, I'm glad we did that. Yeah. Let's move on to the next little problem yeah. to solve. That's the beauty of anything that centers around creativity. Yeah. Is that there's no right or wrong way to do it. Yeah. All of it is an expression that comes out of the imagination of the artists. And that expression could change from, from day to day. I could do Hamlet today, and it would be a, a gazillion times different than the one I did 10 years ago. Or the yeah. one, I never did Hamlet, by the yeah, way, but yeah, I'm just, yeah, yeah, I'm just yeah, riffing yeah. here. Yeah. But, you know, it's going to change yeah, of course. depending on my, my, you know, what I've witnessed in my life and mm. my... my my experience of what it looks like to look at this story through the various lenses that I've had to adapt to by living, by taking the fucking slings and arrows, you know, uh, of outrageous fortune along the way. And the longer you're taking the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, the more your performance is going to fucking change. Yeah. It's what excites me about what you were saying about being keen to find a way to get back on stage. Because it does, it feels like, even even though I never saw you on stage, the idea of what your life, what life experiences you've had within acting, even outside of acting, from watching stuff that inspires you, how that will feel for you, how different it will feel for you as a, as a, as a person, as a, as a performer, to to the last time you stepped on stage and it's exactly that it's those things if you do the same role 10 years apart it may be completely different it may look completely the same on the outside but be completely different on the inside that's the kind of the beauty of the art form so yeah it's definitely an interesting one yep um i'm, I'm gonna start to, uh, to wrap things up now and there's two things i want to get to before i wrap it up and one i have to kind of tell a slight story at the start so the first time we really interacted on social media you retweeted um, a tweet I do every Father's Day where I just say, Happy Father's Day, motherfuckers. Um, and, 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 and you retweeted and commented saying, yes, I guess we are all motherfuckers because that's, that's, that's the nature of it. And I was, from then on, I was like, well, I'm a, fan of, I'm a fan of Ron. I like his stuff. So it was good to have that, that slight interaction. Um, and then a year or two ago, I got, 
asked to come and audition for the new version of Hellboy, not as Hellboy, as another character. And it was going well. I got to the point where I was meeting the directors and producers and that kind of thing. And I drafted a kind of a direct message because I thought if I do get offered it, I need to ask for Ron Perlman's blessing before I accept it. Just because I loved the original Hellboy. And again, it's that kind of thing of having someone who's been through it and experienced it. So you don't have to go into if you are a fan of the idea of remakes, if you're for or against. But what if, if... I didn't get offered the role in the end. It didn't happen. But what do you think your response would have been if someone you really don't know at all had messaged to say, look, I've been offered this role in the new Hellboy. Is the original Hellboy okay with with that happening? Um, you know, I had dinner with David Harbour. Yeah. It was put together by uh, a mutual friend of ours, Patton Oswalt, who's yeah. a, a comedic genius yes. in and of himself. And he's also a, a fanboy geek, yeah. comic book guy. Yeah. And he had the sensitivity and the wherewithal to say, I think David is wondering if this is okay. And wouldn't it be great if I was to arrange like a, uh, you know, like... A passing of the like, torch. Like, you know, um, Brezhnev and, and Reagan <laughs> at, at, in, in Reykjavik, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, so we did. We had dinner. And basically I said to, uh, you know, I was... I'm not sure I should be telling this story or not, but I was offered right. to do the reboot. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. And I was uh, fighting for five years to get the third movie done. Yeah. Because Del Toro had always envisioned this as a trilogy and yeah. it was, you know, clearly the second movie sets up. Yeah. It's just the beginning of the third movie. It's not, it's not the ending of the second movie. Yeah. And it was meant to be three and out. Yeah. And the third one was going to answer all of the questions about the, the, um, the Oracle. Yeah. You know, this is, this is an entity that's been summoned to destroy the world. Yeah. And then nurtured to save the world, which which part of Hellboy it will. So the third one was going to be the playing out. Plus, there's going to be these twins. Yeah. Because, you know, Liz is pregnant with twins at the end of the second yeah. one. And how they're going to play. And so I thought that making the third film, regardless of the business aspect of whether it was film worthy or not, was essential. Because we need we, to finish the story. We, we, we owed it to the fans. Yeah. You know, we may not have had the biggest audience for Hellboys 1 and 2, but they sure invested themselves in it as, as if it was Iron Man, which yeah. made, a, a, you know, $18 trillion in the box. <laughs> yeah. You know, we didn't do that, but we, our fans deserved, by hanging in there, they deserved, you know, the, the resolve. Yeah. And I know that the resolve was going to be mind-blowing because Del Toro kind of hinted at what the third story would entail. Yeah. And I just fought. And, and fought and fought and fought, and I couldn't get all of the, the forces to align, and it just didn't happen. And part of why it didn't happen was that Mignola was um, lobbying to go in a different direction. Right. And when they decided, okay, you know, we don't really want to make this third movie, we want to start all over again with a reboot, they asked me to join, and I said, no, I'm not interested in doing anything but the third one. I'm almost 60, I'm 60 years old. Yeah. And I, I maybe have one more Hellboy movie in me, and it's got to be what we finish of what we started. Story, yeah. And when that didn't happen, I just respectfully declined. Yeah. And I wished David, both spiritually and 
at our dinner, the absolute best of luck with yeah. it. He said, anything you want to tell me? I said, if you don't have fun playing Hellboy, you shouldn't be fucking playing Hellboy. <laughs> That's it. Brilliant. Just have worst, fun. Yeah. And we ended up having a very warm, wonderful dinner. And I've moved on. And yeah. I'm curious to see uh, what this thing looks like. That's great. I love that. That's that's a a, a wonderful story. Um, I'll, I'll wrap things up now. The last thing I wanted to ask you. And it, again, it kind of r- relates to Hellboy 2, I guess. Because I think that's where you met the individual. But have you seen the Brost documentary that you're in? Because it blew up over here at Christmas last year and you were in it because you worked with, with Luke Goss, I think on a TV series as well, but he was in Blade two, in Hellboy 2, right? He was, or was he in Blade 2? He was in both. He was in yeah. Blade and Hellboy, yeah. so I worked a lot with Luke. Yeah. And Luke and I became really good friends yeah. on both films. I don't see him as much in life as I as, as I would like to because we've you know everybody's busy. Yeah, but I wasn't aware that I was in the Brass documentary yeah. until the day before yesterday. Right, when somebody over here yeah said, um, and I said, "What you mean? They put me in a documentary without getting my consent? I'm calling my lawyers." And they said, "No, no. If you go see it, you're going to yeah. thank them for putting." So I haven't seen it. It's amazing. It, it's been great that. The, the brothers have kind of steered into it because it, at first it came out everyone was like is this a mockumentary is this a comedy is this drama but it's just amazing i watched it over christmas with my family and just it was just yeah it's amazing but it was a shot we're like what's what's ron perlman doing in wow well, now i have to see it and now you, you would have been watching the same going what am i doing in a brush documentary yeah, i have no yeah. idea no 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 and you know the funny thing is is that um What's Luke's brother's name? Matt. Matt I met Matt on an airplane. Yeah. And um, does the does thing go into the fact that they didn't speak to each other? Yeah, yeah, that they didn't speak for years and years, yeah. And it was, and Matt was on this plane with me and his dad. Right. Who was kind of um, ill yeah. at the time. He wasn't in great health. And it was my first time meeting Matt, and we, we had a phenomenal visit with each yeah, other on yeah. this, like, six-hour flight. Just talked the whole time. And now don't take this as me taking credit, <laughs> but we talked about family and, yeah. and, and, and vitriol and, and things that happen that, you know, make brothers stop speaking to brothers and yeah. sons stop speaking to fathers, etc. cetera. And um, right after that, they got back together. Mm. Now, I'm not saying it was because of me, <laughs> but... Um, it's why you had to be in the documentary. Maybe. Maybe you were key to this. Maybe. And I'm, you know, I, I have been in a family where people stopped speaking to each other. And, yeah. and I've also been... I'm the son of a man whose father died at 49 and his brother died at 38. And I realized, holy fuck, man, you don't have a chance yeah. to make up to them once they're gone. Completely. You you really have to think about how tomorrow's not guaranteed to any of us. Mm. And you better keep your house in order while you're here. And I think maybe that conversation was had yeah. with uh, Matt. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember. But um, I do remember that that was something that I hoped and prayed would, that how could two brothers like this who had experienced so much together yeah. have let anything get in the way of that? Yeah. And completely. it was just tragic. And I'm really, really happy that they 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 got their shit together. Yeah. Well, I'll 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 leave it there. I'm very grateful for your time. What can people expect to see ahead? Um, Monster Hunters looks fantastic. 
uh, from what I've read and heard about it, what is ahead, or is there anything that you can talk about or can't talk about? Actually, Monster Hunters was um, was done as as a single single movie, but it has franchise written all over it. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if there's another iteration of it. So that's exciting to at this late age to be you know a, a central part of something that may have legs. Yeah, um, desperately trying to find my next TV series because I right. I truly believe that that's the most exciting place to be working right now. I have this little studio of my own called Wing and a Prayer Pictures. We've now produced about nine films. I have a a movie that's about to open in London called Asher, which I star and and produce and Michael Caton Jones directed. Um, And another one called To Dust, which will play here at some point. Those are both films that I produced that um, is what taught me how nobody gives a shit about little movies anymore. But (laughs) I'm sure glad that I made them. I'm going to continue making little movies because I love the art form. And then I just keep taking work that comes out of the blue, like this BBC thing, which is a phenomenal... Oh, what is the BBC thing? I'm here because I'm working... I said, we've not touched on why you're here. Yeah, <laughs> we've yeah. Kind of got past that. I'm here because I'm working on a six-episode miniseries right. for the BBC, written yeah. and directed by Ben Channon. Oh, wow. Um, which is phenomenal script. Yeah. Great cast. Callum Turner, uh, Holiday Granger are the two leads. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm 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 thrilled to finally turn the tables and have you know an American you know tromping on your territory. Yeah, the BBC seem to be great at the moment in 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 finding miniseries in in not necessarily having to be oh is this a long term thing? Has they go no, we've got this story, let's tell it amazingly. I think they're they're really leading the way in that in in TV because so much on Netflix on HBO whatever else. On FX, you're generally having to. The hope is that it turns into a seven, eight season, a Sons of Anarchy, a she, all these other things. Whereas the BBC seems to be the ones again. I know this is a fairly isolated story, but similar to how small films have got their place and their worth, it's got its place and its worth. Let's make this great. So yeah. No, I, I, I actually, I, I love that format. I love like a six or eight episode miniseries that's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. And you get to fully explore the world, which is what we're doing here with this one. It's a really twisted, sick world that everybody's going to be blown away by. And then um, we get to go off and do other stuff. That's perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been Thanks an absolute for pleasure. Me, Cheers, man. Thank you. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Ron Perlman. How cool was that? I was really pleased to get to talk to Ron. I loved that he kind of... There's been a couple... Uh, if you're regular listeners, you'll know that... Uh, it, it's tough because some stories get repeated, man. If you're having conversations, it's a different person and you've not had that conversation before. I talk to a lot of actors and and directors and stuff like that so when they say something and i feel i've got something the story that relates i've said i think only only like three times i think on the podcast over 260 podcasts it might be four times (laughs) i've mentioned that particular moment in taboo that i really felt i kind of got my head round what i wanted to be as an actor not trying to steal the show 
in any way but trying to add to things in the background trying to tell my own stories to add the depth if people choose to look for it but never trying to impose on other people's scenes i think stealing the show is an ugly term that's become a thing that people strive for and i don't want to be any part of that um or stealing the scene anything like that um and ron kind of pulled me up on it because he kind of said it could be good that you're putting that in but it could be you know imposing and it was kind of great it's the first everyone else i mentioned it to Stephen knight i mentioned it to a few other people and um they've all been kind of positive but i like i love the kind of not that he dug me out for it that he kind of said yeah that's one way of looking at it but potentially are you distracting by doing that are you adding to the scene or are you pulling away from the scene and i think i thought about it since and i think you know i think it it, it 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 was intentionally not distracting in any way but yeah it's an interesting one man i love stuff like that i love talking to people and learning from them and getting these new yeah these new outlooks and perspectives and i love when people aren't just going to nod ron ain't someone who's just going to n- n- nod along and agree he's going to think about it and give his view on it and uh yeah that was cracking i love that anyway thank you all for tuning in um, patreon.com slash pip as ever blah 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 i'll be back next week with with more wondrous podcasts um check out pod bible if you haven't pod bible is the uk's leading podcast m- magazine you can get the magazine for free at podbiblemag.com online or you can grab there's physical c- copies in london and brighton in certain places um or you can just pay the posters and packaging to get a physical copy sent out to you um, over at podbiblemag.com. So check it out and follow us on the socials, Podbible on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Facebook. So yeah, thanks a lot. I will be back next week. See you later.